started windsurfing and just loved it. And there was a really wicked scene as well. You know, there were all of these amazing sailors, you know, Bruce and Aaron and JP and Barbara, and they were they were really cool about letting young sailors join in and, and just crash the training. And I used to just put my board in the water in the afternoons, sail down to Eastern Beach and do their training with them, and then like sail home in the dark. It was just like, it was just perfect, you know, you couldn't imagine a better way to get into the sport and, and learn from the best people in the world. From age maybe 10 or 11, I had this chart, like a poster that I'd made on the wall, which had every year, that would have been 1995 through to 2008. And every year had like a sailing goal mapped out on it and it finished in 2008 with an Olympic gold medal so that was definitely the plan like right from right from that age. So how different is an Olympics to a world champs? Probably easier kind of. If, if you could sail at the Olympics the way you sailed at the world champs you would do better at the Olympics. You know the fleet's smaller People are under more pressure, so make way more mistakes. Like the level of yachting would be definitely lower at the Olympics. But the thing is, like, you're not immune from the pressure yourself, so you also make more mistakes. The Olympics have played a large part in Tom Ashley's life. Firstly, as a competitor and Olympic gold medalist and then as an international coach, and now as a CEO of a national sporting organisation with high hopes of success in Tokyo. In this episode of Broadreach Radio, we talk to Tom about the many layers to his journey, from growing up in the sport at a time of remarkable success in this country, and his non-conventional approaches to training, to achieving his lifelong goal, and then rather stumbling into coaching in a vastly different environment to the one he was used to. Tom also talks about how he got into sports administration and his plans for the future and offers his thoughts on what athletes can expect at the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. Tom Ashley is articulate, thoughtful and engaging and has a really good recall of details which all come across in this podcast. The time flew by when interviewing him so I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Tom Ashley. Thanks for having me. I thought it probably appropriate to get you in on the eve of the Tokyo Olympics um, because you can talk about it from a number of different angles, um, starting with athletes, Olympic gold medalist, to coach, and now CEO of a national sporting organisation um, and with high hopes of doing well at these games. So let's just start with Tokyo anyway because that's the most immediate um, so you're Chief Executive of Canoe Racing New Zealand. What would represent a successful Games for you? Oh, that's a tricky question <laughs> right off the bat. I think really we're, we're here for our athletes. And so, you know, if our athletes come back and they're satisfied with the performances that they've delivered, then that would be success. How difficult has it been for them to prepare for these Games, even from a logistical point of view, and as an organisation as well, because I know how hard our team at Yoni New Zealand have been working just to try to understand the rules and then put them into place. Yeah, it will be a bit different. The stuff surrounding the Games is really different. You know, the logistical challenges, the COVID restrictions, um, you know, even just really simple stuff like how you get a meal to your hotel and that kind of that kind of thing becomes really complex. Um, Polly Polly Powery, who does our um, logistics, she's our team manager. You know, this has been a massive project for her, and uh, you know, fair to say, our, our coaching staff have very high standards for how they want to deliver um, the event for our athletes. So, you know, Polly and the coaches have been working super hard on just getting everything perfect and. 
you know, every week a new challenge pops up which requires a, a new plan or a change of plan. So it's been, it's been really big. On the flip side of that though, I guess, if I look at the experience that the athletes are going to have at the Games, I'm probably actually not that different from how I set up my Games. You know, I spent the time at the hotel and then rode my bike to the venue and went racing and then went back to my hotel. So pretty much, sounds sounds quite good to me. <laughs> so I understand you're not heading up. What can you do, I guess, from all this distance away in terms of supporting the team? Not that much, really. Uh, and and that's fine, you know. It's, it's not really my job to be too involved with that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've become... You know, less and less involved as as the team gets closer. But you know, from from the athletes' perspective, I'm sure they they probably welcome that too. You know, I guess when you're trying to get the job done, you don't need suits hanging around. Um, you know, you just need to work with your tight team and and make sure that you can deliver the performance. I like how you say suits when you're sitting here with a t-shirt on and a, a denim jacket. Um, you know how I you know you've been in the job what two or three years now. Uh, how have you sort of approached it? And how have you found it? Uh, well, it's been something really new for me. Uh, so, you know, before this, I was an, an athlete and a coach with a pretty brief foray into corporate law. So, this is this is another challenge entirely. Uh, I've learned heaps. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's kind of a big question, I guess. <laughs> I guess, like anything, you try and understand the challenge and, and understand the task, and then and then make a plan to try and to try and do it and so I guess if you know taking a really broad meta approach that's what I've been trying to do there have been a couple of well documented speed bumps along the way how have you sort of dealt with challenges you know are they that dissimilar to challenges that you face as an athlete I don't think so honestly um, I guess yeah dealing dealing with challenges the most important things that I try and keep my eyes on are I guess firstly my values um, and you know my values and the values that I need our organisation to have, and then also my job. Uh, so I guess specifically as CEO, like the buck stops with me, and it's my job to be responsible for things. So I, you know I don't get to um, yeah blame other people or anything. In the end, it's everything is my responsibility, and um, and so I've just tried to keep my eye on you know those things and box on. You enjoyed it? Most of the time. No one enjoys their job all the time. <laughs> That's fair. You know, where do you see yourself sort of going in your career? Do you, you know, as a sports administrator, is that something you see as a, as a career long term? I'm actually not sure. Like, I really, I do really love sport. And I think it's cool because you, like, success and failure is quite easy to quantify but I, I guess you could say the same for business, right? Success in business is um, how much money you make and some, you know, social good maybe. So, yeah, I'm 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 not sure what the next move is going to be, but you know, I, I'd really love at some point to have the opportunity to lead um, an organisation like Sport NZ or HPS NZ. Um, I think both of those organisations do work that means quite a lot to New Zealand and, and means quite a lot to me. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm I'm doing my master's in law at the moment and really enjoying getting back into that side. So something, yeah, something that's kind of intellectually stimulating is is, um, is what I enjoy. Sounds like you're quite busy. Have you got any time for windsurfing or you know recreational pursuits of any nature? Ah, uh, yeah, plenty of time. Um, I think I've got a pretty good balance. Like I have, um, I've been getting into the wing foiling mm-hmm. at the moment I'm horrible at it like I really suck but it's heaps of fun um, and that's yeah that's a really cool sport I think something I appreciate about that is that it's not a race and it's it's completely just fun and you know like even when you go for a run like I really like to run or, or bike ride but you know and, and running you're still like measuring how fast you go or how long you go for at a minimum like a a one-hour run's better than a 30-minute run. Um, whereas on the wing, it's like, I don't know how long I'm going to be out for. I come back when I get bored um, or when I crash too much. 
And um, so it's really, it's, it's really cool. It's something quite different. Have you tried windfoiling? Yep. And? Oh, I think it's awesome. Like, it's such a good new direction for windsurfing. Like, windsurfing was really, I guess, it's been shrinking for a number of years. Even when I started windsurfing in early 2000s, or very late 90s, I think, there were quite a few people who would turn up to a weekend regatta. Like, you might get 60 or 80 um, at these City of Sales series that we used to have. And that shrunk over the, the next five years down to kind of 10 and then down to five and then down to three or something on the RSX. And so it's just so cool to see how many people are excited about windsurfing again. And, you know, I really think it's... Foiling's just been amazing for sailing, right? Because you have most or all of the elements of traditional sailing and then you just add in speed and, you know, some extra technical elements and heaps of fun, like... That's, yeah, really revitalising the sport. Do you think you would have made it as a windfoiler? Oh, who knows, man. Yeah. <laughs> the million-dollar question, isn't it? It was probably a good time to sort of step back and look at your own Olympic journey because it's certainly a pretty interesting one. Um, son of a sailmaker, started sailing at eight, I believe, and went through Westlake Boys High School here in Auckland. Your sailing changed quite significantly, though, at the time of you, uh, your 15th birthday. What happened there? Man, you've done your research. Oh, I like to think so. Um, yeah, so I, I was sailing Opti's, Opti's and P-Class from age 8 to about 15. And for my 15th birthday, my parents gave me a windsurfer, a Mistral, which was the Olympic class at the time. So that, was, um, that would have been 1999. And there were a bunch of foreign windsurfers who used to come down and spend the summers here in the lead-up to the Sydney Olympics. And then they'd sell their gear when they left. So there was this gear for sale, and, and mum and dad got me, a, got me a set of kit. And I guess they knew something that I didn't, so I you know, started windsurfing and just loved it. And there was a really wicked scene as well. You know, there were all of these amazing sailors, you know, Bruce and... Aaron and JP and Barbara um, and then a few others kind of one, one level down from them as well so it was, it was pretty vibrant and just a perfect environment and they were, they were really cool about letting young sailors join in and, and just crash the training so you know, I used to um, I grew up in Devonport in Auckland and those guys used to train at Eastern Beach and I used to just put my board in the water in the afternoons sail down to Eastern Beach and do their training with them and then like sail home in the dark it was just like it was just perfect you know you couldn't imagine a better way to get into the sport and and learn from the best people in the world what was it about windsurfing that captured you I think I found that it blended the things that I liked about sailing so you know the the racing and the tactics with the physicality and and a bit more freedom so you know there was a bit more speed you know because most of the yachts that were sailing around at that time were a bit slower than the current generation so it was a lot faster than sailing a laser say or a 470 and it's exciting and a bit scary to sail in strong winds so that's really cool uh, you're allowed to pump so it adds that layer of physicality as well and the racing is really dynamic I guess if if a good way for a for a sailor to to understand it would be say a bit like the difference between skiff sailing and and displacement dinghy sailing. So pressure makes a little bit more difference. Um, your angles change quite a lot. Um, downwind sailing is really multi-dimensional as well because you don't just point straight at the bottom mark um, and drift downwind. So there's quite yeah there's quite a lot to the racing, which is which is really I think quite rewarding. So does that satisfy your need as an individual? There's the physicality of it, there's the technical aspect, but also the, the tactical and the, and the intellect that needs to go behind it. You know, just trying to sum up you as an individual, it seems that you're the fit for that. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I guess so. So when I started windsurfing, my strength was the, the tactics because I had come from sailing and you know, I'd raced Opti's and P-Class and Big Fleet's. And then I think as I went on, my strength became 
the physicality and the, the fitness and the, and the speed side of it. And I probably didn't develop the, the tactical strategic side as much as I could have or should have. My focus more went to the um, you know, how to win surf fast. Yeah. Did you, at that young age, did you see a future in the sport for you? Definitely, yeah. So like, right from the beginning, when I first started sailing, I remember I started at the Takapuna Boating Club in Bayswater and learned to sail opties there. And after the very first session, I asked my parents to take me down to the library and I got out every book that they had on, had on sailing. And then from age maybe 10 or 11, um, I had this chart, like a poster that I'd made on the wall, which had every year, that would have been 1995, 94, 95, through to 2008. And every year had like a sailing goal mapped out on it. Um, and it finished in 2008 with an Olympic gold medal. So that was definitely the plan, like right from, right from that age. What was the gold medal going to be in, though, when you were 10 and 11? Uh, sailing, so... It didn't matter what variety? No. Okay. So you did go to the Olympics, uh, 2004, as a 20-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was in Athens, and you finished 10th. What was that experience like for you? It was cool. Like, I learned so much. I didn't really have a great expectation that I would go to that Olympics, you because know, there was... Um, JP Tobin was the top Kiwi then, and he had been quite established on the scene. He was a, a good international competitor. And, you know, fair to say, right up until that Olympic trials was better than I was. As it happened, I won the Olympic trials. In those days, we just used to do a single regatta in New Zealand. So there were only seven of us on the start line or something. It's a pretty intense environment. And, and so that worked out, and then I ended up selected for the Olympics. Honestly, like three months before that Olympic trials, I wasn't even sure I'd race the Olympic trials. I had glandular fever, and you know, the, the Olympics wasn't a, in 2004 wasn't really a massive part of the plan, and I knew that JP was performing really well. And you'd broken your ankle as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. So early in 2003, I broke my ankle quite badly, had four months off the water, came back for a month, was sailing better than I ever had before that because of all the stuff I'd done and learned when my ankle was broken. So I came back and was really happy with how things were going. Then I got glandular fever and really wasn't able to sail much for the rest of that year either. Um, So I was pretty interrupted, but anyway, worked out. And so I found myself at the Olympics and the glandular fever was still kind of going on. So I wasn't really like healthy or able to train to a very high level. And then I made myself sick again. I went to Bulgaria, of all places, to um, to train with my mate Dave Robertson, who was you know we had a bit of a reciprocal deal. He came to train in Athens with me, and then and then I went to help him out in Bulgaria before his Youth Worlds. And we both got sick eating eating um, dodgy chicken kebabs in a, some kind of sketchy place in Bulgaria. So he was horribly sick throughout his youth worlds and lost five kilos or something and then I was back in Athens horribly sick locked in a room lost five kilos didn't eat for a week didn't sail for 10 days before the games and um, so the first the first race of the Olympics was the first time I'd windsurfed in like 10 days Um, but it actually like honestly I probably wouldn't have expected it to have gone that much better anyway Um, maybe you know losing all those kilos made me a bit faster and and 10th was a probably a fairly representative result for my level at the time so I certainly wasn't dark about the result or anything um, and it was yeah, really motivating to keep getting better so What did you learn that you applied to the next campaign? Uh, well, firstly I guess don't get sick and <laughs> injured all the time but I just learned so much right and I think it was really it was a period of a couple of years where I just learned heaps so you know, breaking my ankle and and doing the rehab for that was a really big exercise in learning because kind of when I couldn't couldn't sail, I still had to do something. And probably initially just out of boredom, I you know started doing a couple of different things, met some different people who gave me advice about my training, which were then relationships that I carried on for ten years after that, and. I found that after doing all of that stuff, 
despite being off the water for four months, you know, within a week of getting back on the water, I was better than I ever had been. So that was a cool, a cool thing to learn because it's like, well, yeah, you don't necessarily just have to do all the stuff the same as always or the same as everyone else does. Like you, the real challenge is to understand the task and do the things that are in your power to take yourself closer to achieving your goals. And then I guess I was yeah trying to trying to apply that lesson and and to you know learn to be a professional athlete because as a 20 year old I really had no idea right like I just thought you had to go sailing lots and that was enough. Uh, and then the, the way the Olympics and the subsequent year unfolded were also quite there was quite a lot of learning there. So after the 2004 games, World Sailing changed the Olympic equipment so it went from the Mistral to the RSX and. The RSX looked like it was going to be quite a different challenge. Um, it was, you know, planing upwind in anything more than 12 knots or so. The equipment was kind of like wider and heavier with a bigger sail, so it seemed like you'd have to be a bit bigger and physically stronger. Uh, looked like it was going to be slower and light wind as well, and so that was, yeah, we knew it was going to be quite different, and we had some ideas of how it would be different but you couldn't access the equipment for almost a year after Athens. And so, so that, was a, that was a challenge. Um, and definitely one of, the, one of the really key moments in my sailing career, if not my life, was probably late 2004. So after a, a few months after that decision to change the equipment, but six months before getting the gear, uh, you know, I was doing a bit of formula windsurfing and you know, doing some bike riding and stuff, but honestly not that structured. And my old man called me up and said we needed to go out for lunch. And that's only happened a couple of times in my life. Like, not lunch with my dad, I have lunch with my dad all the time, but, you know, a phone call in that tone, you know, it felt like there was going to be a serious chat coming. And, um, yeah, so he sat me down and, and the message was, I guess, like, you know, you say you want to win a gold medal at the Olympics, you call yourself a professional athlete, like, you should probably get your shit together because like, the stuff you're doing at the moment is not going to get you anywhere. And that was the kind of kick in the ass I needed, so that was really good. And from there, I guess, brought you know, a few more people around me and, and structured my thinking and my campaign a lot better towards that next Olympics. And so that would have been the, really the start of that Olympic campaign. Well, those changes seemed to work pretty well, didn't they? Because uh, you were the leading men's windsurfer in the two years leading into Beijing. You won most of the big regattas in that time, including the pre-Olympic regatta in Qingdao and also the 2008 world champs um, just down the road in Takapuna. So how did you apply all of that and, and be so successful in such a short space of time? Yeah, you know, I guess something something I feel like I've learned is like once you start doing the right stuff, you can get good really quickly. Like if your if your approach is right and if you're if you're working well, you really can improve really fast. Uh, that was my experience in in sailing, as, you know, as a, as an athlete, but also as a as a coach later later on. Like, yeah, you know, there were moments in coaching where things clicked. And you know we got a whole lot of people really good really quickly, um, and so yeah I don't think that time frame of like two three years is remarkably short. Like you can do a lot in that amount of time. We definitely had a really strong focus on getting good as quickly as possible and being good well in advance of the games, and that was literally in that same conversation with my dad. He got me to map out the you know the time remaining between late 2004 and the 2008 games and my trajectory towards the games and one of the real messages that I took out of that was like it's no good thinking you can get good just in time to win a gold medal at the Olympics like you've got to be the best in the world at least a year before um, because everybody's going to get better in the last year and you've got to be accustomed to winning because it's not that often that someone just turns up at the Olympics and wins for the first time ever. And so, that yeah, that was a real focus. And, I mean, I guess it's, it's one thing to want to do it and another thing to do it, but, it, you know, luckily it worked out. Yeah. 
But you didn't race as, in as many regattas as a lot of your competitors, though, did you? Preferring to train at home or in Valencia. So why was that? Um, well, it's certainly not because racing's bad. I guess it was just with the particular challenge of what promised to be quite a light wind Olympics. There was a real emphasis on being at like in peak physical shape, and then and using the racing to achieve what I needed to. So it didn't seem very worthwhile just going and racing for the sake of it. And you know, if I wasn't in peak shape, I was kind of bigger than a lot of the people. So going, you know, if I if I wasn't in real peak shape, I'd go and get smashed and like win by all of the, you know, Chinese and you know the little euros so it was it, it seemed to work better to get myself into a decent physical physical shape and then race maybe twice in the two months leading up to a peak event so would it have been a different approach if the 2008 olympics had been in a heavy years um location yeah quite possibly you talked about a lot of physical exercise we're talking five hours a day on a bike or in the gym and then another three hours maybe on the 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 board you know that's a huge commitment isn't it yeah it's a it's a it was a huge commitment but I guess it was it was my job and I didn't have you know I was really lucky not to I didn't need to work or anything so I was able to commit myself to that and you know you're trying to beat people from all over the world who are you, you can only assume that they're doing everything it takes and you know you're trying to achieve something extraordinary so you've you got to you know put an extraordinary amount of work right it's been said that you're um, a meticulous planner do you agree mm, yes and no so I, I I don't know about the word meticulous I think I so where that campaign was really strong I think was I had the approach really good. So the approach to planning was was quite strong. I'm not someone who needs to map out like every minute of every day. And there certainly are people like that. I guess it's more about, for me, it's more about identifying the really important things and making sure that those get done. And then I, I think I'm probably fairly pragmatic about the other stuff. There's also a little bit of a cheeky side to it, I guess as well is the the toy hippo fixed to the front of the board and then a My Little Pony can you explain those? Uh, I probably can't explain those nah they were just funny at the time what did your rivals or people on the beach think when they saw that? Uh, some people appreciated it and then there were some of the more serious uh, particularly some of the Euro guys who thought it was a bit disrespectful and I should be more serious but each their own I guess well, there was also a Canadian rival who didn't like the fact that you try, trailed an object behind your boat to increase drag um, and make, I think, make your training duels more even. Um, you know, what was your thinking kind of behind that? Oh, I mean, it, not, it, wasn't, it wasn't rocket science. It's just, you know, sometimes, obviously sometimes I would train with really strong training partners and it was an even fight and then other times... If the training partners weren't quite as fast, then you know I had to do things to slow down to make it a challenge. And so this, yeah, sometimes, yeah, and and you know even with good training partners, sometimes they're not on a good day, and and you know I still want to have a hard session, so I so I do something like that. But it was, yeah, I mean it's just just something you do to make sure the training gives you what you need. Thinking outside the box of it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean resistance training's not not new in other sports, right? Um, so I mean, the, the kayakers do it, and yeah, it's it's fairly common. I think maybe not not as much in sailing, but windsurfing with the physical component lends itself to that. You know, like if you pump pump hard, you go faster, but if you slow yourself down a little bit, then the sail gets a bit heavier and the workout changes. So, so what sort of things are you trailing behind your board? I would it would depend. We experimented a little bit, so sometimes it was like a a bit of string or rope tied under the board. Other times it was a um, like a bottle towed behind but that didn't give much resistance and then other times a t-shirt in the water behind but this guy, particular guy thought you were trying to do it to obtain more lift 
Yeah, I, I think there were some there were some holes in that theory though. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you kind of didn't really worry about what other people were doing or thought or you know said about what your methods were. Um, I mean, I took a lot of advice from a lot of people, so you know, I, I think I found value in what a number of really smart people thought about what I was doing. But I guess. Um, you know, you'll encounter you know, 100 people with 100 different theories, so you can't listen to everyone. I, I can't let this one go um, either, just having done a bit of research through you. Can you explain to our listeners um, the story behind your reputation as Disco Tom and this nickname appearing on your Wikipedia page? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think, well, we used to obviously enjoy a night out after our windsurfing events and we had a yeah a really like awesome group of windsurfers from all around the world we used to have a lot of fun and so we used to you know go out dancing and things and I guess my fashion at the time was uh maybe a little bit a little bit retro and then I had a bit of a blonde afro not that you believe it looking at me now and so one of one of our Dutch mates gave me the nickname Disco Tom and then a good mate of mine from Australia wrote that into my Wikipedia profile and then had the ultimate satisfaction of seeing an interview with me on, I think it was Three News. One of the journos picked it up and, and ran with his <laughs> ran with his Disco Tom thing. Sort <laughs> of the, and I quote, electrifying dance floor routine, does that ever come out from time to time still? Oh, that's absolutely true, yeah, mm. yeah. Well imagined. Let's get back to Beijing. Um, so, what were your expectations leading into those games? You know, what would you have been satisfied with? Mm. Uh, like, I think I, I expected to win, but you can, you can never be sure. So, I don't. I can't actually answer that. I think, uh, like, I, I like to think I would have been satisfied with giving up my best. But I don't know. Yeah. You, I read somewhere that you had worked out that you needed only to finish in the top five in every race to win gold. You know, how did that influence the way that you raced then? Uh, so, yeah, I was quite risk-averse, and I guess that probably came from a couple of places. So one is realising you know, generally, well, with the exception of you know, Dory and the Dutch guy who just wins all the races all the time and smashes everyone by 40 points. Um, but up to that point, it seemed that the Olympics was quite a high-scoring event in the windsurfers and people aren't that consistent. And so you just, if you could knock out good scores in all the races, you'd have a pretty good shot, at least, you know, for the first half of the event and then see what needs to be done after that. I'm probably naturally a little bit risk-averse, particularly in... <laughs> in tight situations as well uh, and, and probably also to be honest like a bit of fear of failure so for the first half of the event pretty concerned with just making sure I was in the hunt and and then kind of backing myself to do the job in the second half of the event It well, worked pretty well because you peeled off results uh, 4, 7, 7 1, 5 5, 3, 6, 8 and then there was a 32 in there. What happened on that one? Yeah, hearing those scores, they weren't that good, eh, um, to win a gold medal. But, yeah, I guess I stuck to the game plan pretty much. And, and it was a high-scoring event. Like, there was there was pretty tricky conditions and, and quite a range of conditions, actually. Like, there were windy days and light days, so all the specialists got, got um, yeah, spun out the back. And there were a few of us who were good in all the conditions, and so we were really there in the hunt at the end. Uh, the 38th. 32. Oh, 32. Um, yeah, and that, that was the last race before the medal race, and that was actually the only time I listened to clouds, the, uh, the weatherman, <laughs> and the breeze was, was going to go left, and so I went left, but then the breeze went right. And, and then from there, you know, I was so deep at the first half of the first upwind that... I wasn't going to have better than a seventh, you know, which was my discard, so there was really not much point in pumping. Mm, okay. So it meant that you were third heading into the medal race, um, but I think the top three of you were all within one point of each other. 
So what were those 24 hours like leading up to that race? Um, because, you know, were nerves a, a big factor? Yeah, nerves were a big factor, for sure. Uh, I'm not a very nervous person. So, you know, generally my issue at a sailing regatta would be getting enough nerves in me to perform, like, because I feel better under pressure generally. But that was an exception. Like, I was definitely on the on the too nervous side but the thing is like it's the last day of the Olympic Games and you're in the hunt for a medal so like it's going to be stressful and I think I, I did a reasonable job of, of keeping a lid on it I didn't sleep at all the night before but who would right like I don't I don't think that's a big surprise I went down to breakfast the morning of the race and Becky Grant Beck my coach he came down and um the first thing we said to each other was like, oh, like, did you sleep? It's like, nope. <laughs> it's like, cool, me neither. <laughs> and, uh, and then I think what really helped was I went down to the, the race site and I was rigging my sail. And one by one, my rivals came, came past. And I saw the Israeli guy first. He was in fourth, but he had a shot at a medal. There were four of us who were in the hunt for the three medals. Um, he actually looked pretty good. And as you would, right, you're in fourth, nothing to lose. He was really young. He was like 21 or something. Um, and so he, he was looking good, seemed to be feeling good, ready, ready to have a good race. And, um, but I guess that didn't worry me, worry me too much because I knew, I kind of knew I could beat him. He was my training partner before the games. And so it didn't, that didn't really hit me that hard. But then I saw the two other guys, the British guy and the French guy, um, who were mates of mine, you know, I used to train with them as well, but they just looked terrible, like way worse than me. And and so I guess that made me feel great because I was like, well, you know, I don't actually have to do great, I just have to do better than them. And they look like shit, so I'll probably be okay. Did your mind ever cast back to, you know, that, that calendar that you put on the wall that mapped out the years from what was it, 95 through to 2008, and think about that journey that had brought you to this moment? It would have been really poetic if it had, but no, <laughs> not really, sorry. <laughs> what do you mean about the race itself? Because um, Grant Beck described it as the best race he'd ever seen you sail. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, Getting carried away too, was he? I mean, it was, a, it was a good race in the circumstances um, with that amount of pressure, for sure. Like, I... I I sailed fairly well, I think. Uh, I think I only, I only finished like third or fourth in the race. Third? Mm. Um, so you'd hope if it was the best race I ever sailed, I might have won the race, but you know, I, I guess got the job done. Do you, what, do you remember covering here or taking a risk heading out here, or was this the conservative side of you just sort of playing the, the numbers? Uh, no, I think I... I remember sailing a relatively conservative race but did manage to take a couple of opportunities. I, I started on port, went to the right, came back on a fairly nice shift, went through the middle middle a little bit, a few tacks. Um, there I remember a fairly close call with the British guy where I had you know, crossed him on port and he protested but had nothing. I was crossed him by a metre or something. And, and then in the kind of the final quarter of the top of the first beat I found myself heading to the right there was a nice gust in front of me and that was really the race like came back from that and good pressure and um, yeah was in it from there What goes through your mind then you know the last half of a race when you're controlling things nicely and you've got that gold medal that's not too far off in the distance Probably just don't fuck it up I guess yeah, the, the thing is, like windsurfing, also you're pumping, and I do remember like going through the slalom at the end, like my forearms were absolutely blown. So I was really like praying that no one got a gust and got planing behind me or something because there was no way I was getting, I was pumping onto the plane. Like I could barely, like barely hold onto the boom at that point. So that that is one thing with windsurfing, like you, the physicality of it can focus you quite well. So there's not there's not a whole lot going through your mind except for just you know control the effort and keep pumping. What about at the end then? Is it joy, relief? Relief. 
Did the joy come? No, not really. No. Not like in a dark way or anything. Um, but I, I don't think, I don't have a really like effusive or, yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot of amplitude between the, the highs and the lows. And um, so, like, obviously I was happier than if I'd lost, but I wasn't, you know, fist pumping or anything. Did Disco Cop Tom come out that night? <laughs> I was too tired, man. Yeah, <laughs> I went went for a um, went for a coffee with Becky and my dad. My dad was over there, and and then went to bed early. I think. Crazy. Mm. Um, did life change at all after that? You know, Olympic gold medalist in a country like New Zealand, where we that's a, a high sort of accolade, and, and we put a high price on that. Yeah, definitely, it opened doors. And you know, there were more opportunities as a as a result of that for sure. I mean, oh, it's hard to say in hindsight, but I think a lot of the opportunities that I've had since then were because of doors that that opened. Was the plan at that stage to defend the title in London four years later? No, not at all. Uh, I thought that I would stop sailing then and just go to uni, and then in the few months after, I guess I realised that I still did enjoy windsurfing and so I made a plan to uh, take a year off but stay fit and then come back and, and you know, windsurf again, do another campaign. So you missed out on selection for London to JP Tobin. How did you cope with that? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I didn't deserve to get selected, you know, and, and JP did. He beat me fair and square, so that's that just is what it is. Um, that that campaign, I, I mean, I, in hindsight, I've learned so much more from that than I learned from my success, or or maybe it's the comparison between the two. I guess when I started the the campaign for 2012, I thought that I had it all worked out. So I, I had worked out this build-up to a regatta that you know I just used to basically copy-paste into the five months before each peak event and it just you know it was just working like clockwork every time I did that I just won so why do anything different so and and the other thing was I knew that I just worked harder than everyone else so what I thought was why don't I just keep doing that and then work even harder and who's going to beat me and the analogy I use sometimes for that is you know it's like if you've got an answer sheet for the exams but then they change the questions and that's really what it was, right? There was, you know, London was a new challenge. People got better as well. So, the, you know, the way that people were sailing the equipment was quite advanced from where it had been in 2008. And, you know, different conditions. It really sounds quite obvious, right? It sounds super dumb to do what I did. And, um, and I kind of realised after about a year that that wasn't cutting it and I needed to go back to basics. Like, maybe what was good about my previous campaign was the fundamentals and the approach rather than the details and so we went went back to that and improved again really quickly but probably just ran out of runway like I, I it wasn't like the performances weren't horrific you know, I finished sixth at the two world champs but definitely didn't have the x factor that I had bef- that I'd had before when I was kind of winning at will so you miss selection what happens do you just pack the kid away or do you still go windsurfing for fun uh, I, so no, I didn't go windsurfing for fun. I did a bit of training um, with um, so my mate Dave was coaching Natalia, who was trying to go get selected for the Olympics. So I did some training on the women's equipment with her, trying to um, help with that. And um, but then gradually kind of refocused into you know, getting back into law school and um, went back to uni and then just moved on. And so you thought the plan at that stage you'd become a lawyer of some description and, mm. you know, see out your professional career in terms of the office suit guy that we talked about earlier on. Why then, or how, did you get into coaching? Because you were firstly with the Korean windsurfers and then as head coach of the Chinese windsurf program. Yeah, the coaching thing kind of happened by accident. The Korean, the Korean gig was more... It was just a, a holiday job to pay some bills while I was at uni. So that was just, a, you know, maybe a total of just a few months. 
of actual contact time over over maybe nine months or a year. That was kind of fun, but it wasn't super rewarding, I guess. I didn't have any intention of becoming a coach. And then one of my Chinese, my old competitors, approached me to help his province team uh, prepare for the Chinese National Games, which is a really big deal in China. So I went over there a few times and then got offered the gig as coach of the national team and started off spending about half the time over there while I finished uni and actually as a, in my first year working as a lawyer and then eventually dropped the, the law and coached full time. How did you approach it? You know, did you borrow from your old kind of coaches or did you use the Tom Ashley, I'm, this is the way I'm going to do it kind of approach? You know, how did you find your formula? Initially, it was quite unstructured, I guess, and probably for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I just didn't know what I was doing, except to try and help people do the stuff that I used to do. And um, secondly, there was always some time pressure. So, you know, when I first started, it was like preparing for the national games. That was in the same year. And then when I started in the national team, we needed to, you know, qualify athletes for the Olympics and then and then there was a world champs and then there was a you know there was always something around the corner and I didn't really have a long term plan probably because I didn't plan on working with the team for that long um, but also because that was that was how the team management was kind of set up you know where we're looking for results in this regatta three months from now so you're, if you're always preparing for a regatta and just trying to get your best result at that event makes it makes it hard to deal with the fundamentals. Uh, but I kind of learned as I went, I think, and we had more and more success, and then we had a couple of good experiences with athletes who, you know, we kind of made the call, well, you know, they're not really going to make it anywhere doing what they're doing or making incremental improvements, going from regatta to regatta, so... The, the rational approach with those athletes was like, well, hey, why don't we just see what happens? Like, you, you'll get worse before you get better. But, you know, if we don't do this, it doesn't matter because you're not going to do anything anyway. And, um, and so that worked out a couple of times really well and, and much faster than we expected as well. Like, you know, we, with, a, with one or two of them, we expected it might be a, you know, kind of two-year project, you know, get worse for a year, then start to get better. Um, where it was, it was like maybe a year or, or something like that for these athletes to get quite successful and so I guess just learning from those experiences changed my approach quite a lot to, to the coaching and to the point where we we had a you know a couple of pretty good years 2015 2016 the Olympics was good and bad we um, we got a, a silver medal in the women's and um, our guy didn't didn't have a great games. We didn't really have a great six months going up into the games, and which was disappointing because the year before he you know, smashed the test event and was really one of the favourites. So we, we dropped the ball there. Uh, but then when we regrouped after the games, and you know at that point my intention was then to stay for the next whole campaign. We brought in a bunch of young athletes and focused on kind of going back to basics. And and then we had amazing, yeah, amazing success like quite quickly after that, which was really rewarding. How did you find the cultural side of it? Um, because Chinese sport is quite different to say the New Zealand uh, setup. Um, you know, what what do you, did you find with windsurfing? Yeah, it was so different. Like in the beginning, it was super tough. Obviously, there's there's all of the obvious like cliche stuff, right? Just going into a different culture and there's a different language and yeah so that's that's the that's the obvious stuff but then also the culture around performance and how to get the best out of athletes is something that was really hard to relate to coming from where I you know where I was from I guess I was the extreme opposite end of that continuum as well you know I'd run my own campaign had 100% self-determination do what I want when I want and answer to no one like I guess I was lucky enough to be able to you know kind of 
bring in coaches when I needed rather than working under a consistent coach. They, you know, they were, Chinese athletes were fully under the control of the program to the extent that you know, they didn't even have their own passports. They would give them into the team and wouldn't be able to go anywhere without permission. They did the training that they were told every day. Um, most of them had been pulled out of villages at age 8 or 10 with no idea what windsurfing even was. So it's not like they were doing it for passion. And, and so, yeah, you couldn't have something more different. Was it hard then to teach people like that coming from that sort of background without that inherent instinctive passion for the sport? Yeah, super hard. Uh, in the beginning, it was, quite a, it was quite a shock to the system because you know, we'd, we'd constantly have people just taking days off because they were injured, even though they weren't really injured. It was all fake. Um, and clearly when they were on the water, they weren't focused. They didn't really want to be there. And so that was that was the first challenge, and that was something that took really probably two or three years to get good. It was it was probably it was end of 2016 by the time we got a really good, consistently good performance culture in the team, where you know they were working together and they were also all like fully engaged and wanted to be there training, enjoyed themselves, put everything they had into you know into their performance. I can imagine the Chinese sort of machine is sort of keeping close tabs on what you're doing. Did they give you uh, a long leash to do what you wanted and, and coach the way that you wanted? Not initially, but more and more over time. So when I first started, yeah, really I didn't have a whole lot of control. Like I had to fight really hard for a few weeks even to be able to set the training schedule. And then... The next battles were you know, trying to decide which events we went to or when we competed, um, then you know, what equipment we needed, all of that kind of stuff, which is pretty fundamental stuff when you're talking about running a sailing campaign. Then there were some turning points over time where it was just a process of, of building trust, I guess. And, and you know, to be fair to the management over there, no foreign coach ever lasts more than about six months or a year in China. Like, no one stays because the culture's just too different. And so no one made it work, so why would they give a whole bunch of control to someone who might just leave in six months? But, we, yeah, we had some turning points over that time where we kind of gradually built trust. And it wasn't, it wasn't stuff that was really obvious to me, but, you know, one of the things that was really big for them was I got, I got offered money like way more money than I was earning at the national team to go and coach one of the provinces and I turned it down just because I wasn't interested and because it was inconsistent with the you know I had a contract with these guys and stuff and um, apparently that I found out months later that was really meaningful and after that things got easier you know and, and I guess they figured I was there for the I actually cared about it and I was in for the long haul and, and so then all of the you know when we really needed to get stuff done for the performance, they would find a way to make it happen for me. So that was, yeah, we, we had, a, by the end, a really great relationship. So what brought you back to New Zealand? Uh, we, it was just a kind of change in circumstances. So at that time, like 2017, we had, like, the team was really, like, was really humming. Like, I was loving the job. Um, we had some, yeah, some young sailors doing super well. Um, and and I was into it like I, I was keen to stay for another few years um, there was a change of like every five or ten years or something um, the Chinese sport ministry has a change of leadership and then people bid for jobs and there was kind of a, a new boss came into the sailing system there was a, a kind of a political imperative to have less foreign head coaches so I had the opportunity to stay as a kind of as the expert coach, but with a Chinese head coach, and I knew who the people could be, um, or were likely to be, and um, kind of felt like it would have been a shame to give up, I guess give up the control, but not not for selfish reasons, um, to people who I didn't really trust to do a good job. Um, and 
yeah, so I just I just left then. But but with you know great relationships still, still in touch with a bunch of the sailors and and the when when I made that decision, you know the the team looked after me super well and you know paid out my contract and and everything. So like it was a it was a really great parting, um, and I'm super grateful to have been there. You know it was a wicked experience. Like definitely kind of best um, best professional sporting experience I've had so far. Are there any things that we could borrow from either the Korean or, or Chinese systems and incorporate into our own high performance programs? Um, no, I, I don't. Or not, not anything that's kind of inherently Chinese or inherently Korean. I think performance is always a little bit the same in that you kind of figure out ways to solve the problem and then ways to get the people engaged and, you know, working hard on their own performance so yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't say anything in particular so when you came back to New Zealand what what were the what was the plan um I didn't really know I it was kind of I was in the fortunate position with you know I had a couple of years of of contract paid out with the Chinese so there was no there was no great pressure but I was pretty keen to do something and to try and work in sport and see how that is. So I actually interviewed for um, Ian Stewart's job at, at Yachting New Zealand. And obviously Ian got the job and not me. And But, you know, that was cool and, and he's done a great job and then this opportunity came along next. And so I interviewed for this job and, and got it. So you weren't looking to get back into coaching, no? No, not really. Like, as I said, I loved it. Like, I really, really enjoyed every minute, almost, oh, the last two years, every minute of the last two years in, in China. But I guess I, I also was, I felt like I'd had the biggest challenge in windsurfing coaching that there was because it was a massive team with in a completely different culture with all sorts of crazy challenges and the idea of, like, coaching one or two sailors kind of seemed a bit boring like it wouldn't have been anything like that experience that I'd had so I do enjoy a bit of coaching from time to time and I've you know done a few cashies overseas and stuff but it's not it's yeah it's not quite the same and we talked earlier about the golden period of of New Zealand windsurfing which you were a part of what was it like for someone like you to kind of see what had happened in this country in the sport you know in that 10 years after your success at Beijing. What do you mean by that? What happened? Well, as in the sport sort of retrenched in terms of the numbers who were uh, participating, there wasn't the same level of success that um, was being enjoyed throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s. You know, to, to see, I guess, where the sport had gone and now we're seeing an opportunity potentially with the windfoiling. Um, you know, just where your um, did you have some ideas of what could be done to, to bring that next generation through? Uh, so honestly, I wasn't I wasn't really super engaged in the in the windsurfing scene through that time. So like obviously it would have been great if there had been heaps of success, you know, through the twenty tens and but as it happened there there wasn't and that's that's okay. You know, what has been really cool is seeing the other classes so successful and you know windsurfing is a part of sailing so you know I'm not a really parochial windsurfer at the expense of everything else so it's been wicked seeing you know the America's Cup and, and the success of the Olympic sailors like that's just super cool and also such a great group of people right it is really exciting though to see the sport coming back and definitely the foiling is a new lease of life and I guess it's it's also great you know like JP seems to be doing a wicked job with that group and you know, he's got a really enthusiastic group of young windsurfers that he's driving with heaps of enthusiasm as well. He seems to be loving it. And to see yeah, to see that, that group, you know, building in numbers and, and in strength, that's that's super exciting to see. So no, it's really it's really cool. They have a harder job, I think, when you you know, when there is no one who's you know, currently the best in the world that you can look at every day and say, okay, well, that's what it looks like to be the best windsurfer in the world. 
it does make it harder to improve, but uh, you know, that's that's the job that's in front of them, and and they definitely look like they're giving it a good crack. Mm, well, we're certainly pretty excited about what potential lies in that group, and there's multiple mm. within that group as well. So we sit here on the eve of the the Tokyo Games. You know, as a the wise. Uh, man that you are, you know, what would you be saying to, say, a young Tom Ashley who's about to go to his Olympics or someone else sailing team, you know, what piece of advice that you wished someone had told you before they went to the Olympics? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to give, give advice to any of these uh, these sailors, because I'm sure they know what they're doing. You've got some bloody successful sailors in the program. I guess it's if there's anything, maybe it's take it back a level. Like, make sure you're, you know, the most important thing is the most important thing. So, just you know, focus on what's important, and um, don't get too distracted. But just how different is an Olympics, say, to a World Champs or a World Cup or you know those other events that are. You're still striving to win, but how different is this one? Well, that's two, that's two questions. How different is an Olympics to a world champs? Um, probably easier, kind of. If, if you could sail at the Olympics the way you sailed at the world champs, you would do better at the Olympics. Um, you know, the fleet's smaller, people are under more pressure, so make way more mistakes. Like, the level of yachting would be definitely lower at the Olympics. But the thing is, like, you're not immune from the pressure yourself, so you also make more mistakes. And then probably depends how good you are at coping with distractions and stuff, but I guess that's what will be cool about this Olympics is there won't be any distractions because you can't do anything. Um, there's no pissing around in the dining hall getting autographs. Not that our group of sailors is really seems to be into that stuff anyway, which is good. Um, yeah, and then how different is this Olympics from a normal Olympics? But... I, I don't know, probably not that different, I think. Yeah, superficially different, but in the end, you just got to go on the water and go yachting. So you'll have two screens on, won't you? The canoe racing on one and the sailing on the other? Is that how it works for, for you during these games? Yeah, well, I mean, I think they'll probably be on in different times, so might be able to watch. Uh, yeah, um, it will be, yeah, it'll be awesome. And not just the sailing and the kayaking, right? There's so much cool stuff during the Olympics. And like any good Kiwi, it's, it's a bloody cool time to watch sport yeah, it's going to be fascinating just before I let you go though Tom I need to get your uh, worst wipeout ever what is your story well you've already you've already alluded to it so I, I broke my leg quite badly crashing by myself at Cheltenham Beach just coming back from a training session and you know it wasn't that spectacular I was just doing what I did at the end of every session when it was low tide and sailing my board backwards with a fin out of the water and it was just really shallow and the board was going quite fast because it was kind of hydroplaning on the on the you know the little bit of water between you know above the sand and just yeah had a crash and and broke the the bottom off the my fibula and all of the ligaments and dislocated my ankle and stuff so it was quite a long road back from that one so how do you get yourself out of the water and to seeking medical attention? You know, how, t- take me from that step to getting a cast on your foot. Yeah, I was probably 30 metres from the, from the dry sand and my old man had been windsurfing and finished a little bit earlier so he was just coming back to grab his board and carry it home. And he saw me lying on, lying on the sand, like, waving and initially just waved back thinking I was having a rest and then saw that I wasn't in very good shape so yeah he came to um to help me and then the there was a restaurant on Cheltenham Beach that they saw that I was not doing well so called the ambulance and then ended up in hospital for a week. Imagine if it being one of those um returns home in the dark like those early days from eastern beaches huh? Yeah yeah wouldn't have been wouldn't have been good, but I guess, yeah, you always find a way. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really fascinating to get your story um, because there are so many different layers. So uh, I really appreciate the time you've, you've given up for Broadreach Radio today. Oh, thanks for having me.
Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Broadreach Radio. If you've enjoyed it, please share it on social media or among your friends. Now, the podcast normally comes out every second Friday, but that might be a little fluid over the coming weeks because I'll be off to Japan with the New Zealand sailing team for the Tokyo Olympics. You can drop me a line at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz if you'd like to pass on a message to the Kiwi sailors at the Games. And, as always, you can email me with any feedback and suggestions about the podcast. I'll catch you soon with the next episode of Broadreach Radio. 